A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. There are many books on eating disorders and mental health, but few informed by both the immigrant experience and practicum. It's why when I learned about Ivan Castaneda's memoir, Pork Belly Tacos with a Side of Anxiety, my journey through depression, bulimia, and addiction, I knew I had to share Ivan's story here. Ivan is a clinical social worker who practices in our communities, and so this conversation is both about Ivan's personal journey and her expertise in how we unpack layered traumas and break vicious cycles. Hi, Yvonne. How are you? I am really looking forward to this conversation. So thank you for being here. Oh, my God. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. I want to start in a place that I, I don't normally start, but I think it is important given what we're going to be talking about today and given that you are the one who actually has the training and the expertise in therapy and psychoanalysis, which is how do we have a conversation about eating disorders? in a way that is not triggering, re-traumatizing, does not glamorize eating disorders. Can you give me some parameters for how we have this conversation in a way that will benefit our audience as women, as daughters, as mothers? I think that is such an important question, and I appreciate that you asked it. Just kind of staying away from questions and or discussion that has to do with the ins and outs of the actual eating disorder. Because the way I approach the eating disorder is through the lens of mental health. Whether it's the eating disorder or alcohol addiction or exercise addiction, I'm not so focused on the what that looked like. I'm focused on those were actually just symptoms of something much deeper that had to do with mental health. Absolutely. And we'll, I want to dig into how it is that you arrived at that understanding. You write so beautifully, Yvonne, about the ways in which food very early on became a reward for you. How did that relationship develop? It's a relationship that started long before I was ever born. The relationship with food that my parents had, you know, my parents were both extremely poor in their native countries of Cuba and Mexico. And I think that when they arrived in the United States and started to build a life for themselves with no education or very little education, food for them, like a stocked fridge and a stocked pantry was the very definition of we made it, we are successful. And so for us, you know, especially a mom who suffered hunger, my mom was never going to say to me, no, if I asked for a donut at 10 p.m. Mommy would never do that. Mommy would say, claro que si, mija, andale. Like, here, have the donut. Do you want a glass of milk? And do you want another one? (laughs) 
And so it wasn't necessarily reward so much as it was just a, a thing that was never denied. It was never denied us in any way. Later on, I don't know that reward is the right word. I would say it was just the thing that I turned to when I was feeling a certain kind of way. So if I was feeling nervous, pressured, it was food. I'm thinking specifically about the early experience you had as a pretty gifted child pianist and the ways in which then you would do sort of those McDonald's runs at the end of a a lesson. And you have what is for our listeners just such a very shared and common relationship to perfectionism and perfectionism as a way of not just calming your own nerves or managing your own anxieties, but as a way of catering to your mom's anxieties, right? That if you are perfect and you are in control, then it is one thing you can check off her to-do list, even as a child. A hundred percent. And yes, I think my mom, again, like I wrote in the book, she was so excited. I think my family was just really excited that they had such a talented daughter who had this gift for piano that seemingly came out of nowhere. Where did she get that from? And so certainly these trips to McDonald's, which for us, Alicia, was a luxury. Like, ooh, you were bougie if you were going to McDonald's. Watch out. If you were getting a Happy Meal, wow. And so these, whether it was McDonald's or stopping at 7-Eleven and letting me get a Slurpee and a Snicker bar and a bag of Doritos, like whatever it was. So there was that. And then definitely, again, it was something I noticed as a kid is when I do these things, my mom is happy. She's not worried. I don't know that I did that super consciously. As kids, we just do the things that we do because we just want things to feel safe. And to feel okay. So I just noticed how much joy it brought my family, how much joy it brought my parents whenever I played the piano. I mean, sometimes my father would get emotional, like he'd be sitting on the couch listening to me practice. And then I'd look over and I would just see tears. He wasn't like bawling, but I would see he would get very emotional. And so I think I just kind of took that on as it's my responsibility in a big way to make sure that these two people are okay. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blow-up barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blow-ups. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size 8. And now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th. 
at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the ball is filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? (laughs) They do look cute, though. Bringing cheer. M&M's for all fun kind. You then layer adolescence, which is already a pressure cooker of a time onto those foundational dynamics and your relationship to everything changes, your relationship to your family, your relationship to food, your relationship to your extracurricular activities. What was that experience of adolescence that reshapes your relationship to your body? I think what was really hard about that is that growing up in elementary school, I was never bullied. No one ever bullied me. We were like good kids. We were nice to each other. I had friends. It didn't register to me again that I was gordita. You know, I was overweight, but it wasn't on my radar necessarily. And then when I hit junior high and that adolescence phase, it was so heightened. It was so over the top, this preoccupation or this awareness of my body. And of course, having Cuban relatives consistently comment (laughs) (laughs) Mira, on everything from my eyebrows to my toenails, like legit, everything. Coño, I couldn't do anything. My most vivid memory of being at my Cuban grandmother's funeral is actually just the parade of mourners where every person felt the need to either tell me that I had gained or lost weight depending on when they had seen me last. Oh, so you know. Not I'm so sorry for your loss. Oye, mira, estás gorda. Mira, you've gained weight. Oh, flaca. Depends when they saw you. Oh, está muy flaca. Something. Something. <laughs> There's like, they have a reference point and then they judge your appearance based on that reference point. I'm like, oh, I remember you this way and now you're this. And I have to say something. It's actually your mom who sort of incepts this idea of binging and purging into your mind. And I'm curious then when you later share that that is what you are doing, if there's any sense of responsibility on your mom's part for having once suggested that throwing up was a way of finding relief? Not in that moment. I think when I shared it with her, I could literally see the wheels in her head spinning, like trying to wrap her head around that. Like, I don't understand why you're purging the food that we worked so hard for. And so I think if she has on some level felt the guilt of that and responsibility of that, she has not said that to me. And truthfully, Alicia, like, I don't need that because I know, right. You know what I mean? Like, I know mommy meant well, I didn't tell her with the intention of like saying it's your fault. Like, this is your fault. I just needed to tell her she's my mom. I just needed to tell her like what was going on and hopefully she would help me fix it. I have to say, when you go to your parents and you tell them what is going on with you, you actually are met with what we would want, which is like love and an embrace. It actually is sort of a little bit later 
when you're going to go see some more family members that the shame of the whole thing hits because your mom says, well, don't tell them. Oh yeah. Nobody knew. I could. What's going on. Nobody knew. The only people who knew were my mom and my dad. There was one instant where my, one of my aunts came over. She made a comment about my weight. She said something about my appearance and my dad, I have never seen my dad flip and my dad flipped. And he was like, I need you to get out of my house. And I need you to never return until you learn to walk in the house and not make a comment about her appearance. Were you able to find culturally competent care? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, that's so sweet. That would have been so nice. No, I mean, no. This was, wow, this is like the 80s. I'm, I'm going to be 52. So this was a long time ago. The young man that I met in my karate class with him, I was very close. He was the person who was like, no, we got to get you some help. And this was initially when I first started benching and purging. And he took me to a therapist. He paid for it himself, a private pay therapist. And she was lovely. She was like a nice abuelita. She was a grandmother and white and wonderful and just didn't understand anything about my culture. Didn't understand familismo. Didn't understand the idea of we don't share outside of our family. And also, I can't like necessarily put that on her. It was also, I wasn't, I didn't want to be bad. I just wanted to be skinny. I didn't care. I was willing to do whatever it took to be thin. What was the experience of learning that eating disorders, disordered eating is fundamentally tied to mental health? And did that make it easier to talk about the eating disorder or did it actually make it in the moment harder to talk about it? It was never easy for me to talk about it because for a long time I denied it. I deluded myself into thinking that I was okay by adopting all these other coping mechanisms like exercise. Like it was exercising a great deal, but I had this little negotiation going on. You know, like if I eat this, then I got to do this over here with exercise. And if I, this happens in the exercise space, then this is what it means for me with food. So I still had an eating disorder. I just didn't admit it. And I didn't fully understand it. And neither had I connected that the eating disorder, alcohol abuse, cigarettes, exercise addiction, that these were all really just maladaptive coping mechanisms that I was utilizing to manage anxiety. And so it was as I got older, right? And I went through a period of time where I just really intentionally decided to go inward and really explore a lot of things and and finding that at the heart of everything was fear. It was just really fear. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the LA area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. My original question as I was preparing for this interview with you, Yvonne, was how we learn to talk in our own homes about eating disorders. But listening to you talk, it strikes me that the question is bigger, right? It's like, how do we learn how to talk inside our own homes about anxiety, about depression, about things that manifest as maladaptive coping mechanisms? Like, what are the tools that we need to have as 
parents, as tias, as friends, for how to begin these conversations? The first thing that we need is a willingness to know ourselves better. That's it. Without that, forget it. Like, I think there needs to be some kind of recognition that there's something going on that maybe we need to address for ourselves. We need therapists. We need individuals to help us first identify. Let's just start with identifying how we're feeling. I was shocked at how many people can identify their emotions. Literally don't know how to identify their emotions. Like, I don't know what I'm feeling. I couldn't articulate anything with my family. I couldn't tell them that I was sad, that I was scared, because I didn't know. I was fighting it tooth and nail. I was digging my heels into the ground. I didn't want to believe that I wasn't okay, right? Like that was a big theme of the book is believing that I was a guerrera, a warrior that is so strong. And me growing up, that was celebrated. So I think a big piece of it, honestly, is for us as individuals, whether you're a tia, abuelita, mom, a dad, is to pause. Are you brave enough to just sit still and identify what you're feeling? And then from there, accept it, be okay with it. And then you can talk about it. I'm thinking as a mother of two daughters about the fact that they're little, they're three and they're six, and people still comment on their appearance all the time. And I try to find ways that are gracious to redirect family members away from talking about the way that they look. How do you set those ground rules before you get to the point where, like your dad, you flip out and toss someone out of your house? Great question. I am not necessarily as gracious. However, what I do, Alicia, is if somebody makes a comment, whether this is in my family or outside of my family system, and there's an opportunity for me to offer, right? I always say, can I offer you something? Because then what it implies there is that they're receiving it. They're choosing to receive what I'm going to say. So I say, can I offer you something? And they say, sure. And I said, look, I know that maybe you came from this background in which you say these things and you don't necessarily mean harm. And this is how it could be interpreted by this child. And I used my own experience growing up. These things were said to me. And the way that I interpreted that is that my worth is wrapped up in my appearance and or my achievements. And so if you're constantly commenting on a child's appearance for good or for bad, right? Like, oh, you look very pretty today. Because I, I, I catch myself all the time. Don't, why? Why do you need to comment on someone's appearance? And so that's how I offer it to them. I said, I just want you to think about that. What has it required of you to disentangle these notions of attaching your worth to your looks and to your achievements? And how constant is that work, right? Because I think sometimes we talk about it as though it's like not a journey, as though it's like you do some therapy, you wrap it up in a bow, and then you're just, you are done. No, (laughs) no. Growth, like the evolution of your spirit, of your soul, is a journey. It is never ending, and I would hate for it to end. Honestly, Alicia, it has taken time. If you were to ask me what it took, it took time, and it took patience, and it took trust. It's like just having faith. today. Whenever I feel offended, hurt, any kind of emotion that causes distress, I lean into that as, oh, okay, I have room to grow. There's something for me here. 
And let me just explore that now. In terms of separating myself from achievements and appearance, again, that is a journey that started when I was 35 years old that I have never stopped. And I'm not saying that I'm perfect. Of course not. I'm human. Like anybody else, my ego is tempted and teased by all kinds of things. And so I'm very, again, I'm, I check in with myself. Whenever an opportunity comes up, I check in with myself and I just assess internally what is happening. And if it feels good, it feels like something that is true for me, then I go with it. If it's tied to something else, like wanting to get attention, wanting, mm -mm, then I turn it down. And as difficult as that is, I turn it down. I'm like, that is not the intention. That is not what I want to move forward with. This is not about me. I didn't write the book for my comfort and entertainment. I wrote the book because I wanted to love and serve others. Which brings me perfectly to my next question, which is, this was a hard book to write. Like I didn't, Uh I, I could tell on the reading side of it how this is a story where you were excavating years and years of trauma. Mm-hmm. What emotional supports did you build in for yourself as you were doing that excavation? Alicia, I would love to tell you that I had a lot of emotional support and I would be lying. I think I relied heavy on God. I relied heavily on prayer on guidance, on, there were many moments where I was writing that I, I can't tell you how many times during the book, I was like, I, ya coño, I just want to let this go. I don't want to write this anymore. I'm done. And I would consistently get pulled back. And I think that what I, it kind of ties into what something I just said, you know, God is intentional in all of his ways. There's no way that I have had all of these experiences and also maybe have a gift for writing, for communicating what was the purpose of all that? And so I think my emotional support was very much so rooted in just connecting and staying connected to God. And that was meditation. That was spending time alone. That was walking. And I just kept, again, I kept going back to, why am I writing this book? Why am I writing it? And I kept reminding myself that it's something bigger than me. I don't want to write it just for me. I want to put something out there in the world to help other people. Yvonne, thank you so much for doing this. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much, Alicia. Thanks for listening. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lantigua and me, Alicia Menendez. Paulina Velasco is our producer. Cochin Tashiro is our lead producer. Trent Lightburn mixed this episode. We love hearing from you. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. Slide into our DMs on Instagram or tweet us at Latina to Latina. Check out our merchandise at latinatolatina.com slash shop. And remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, wherever you're listening right now. Every time you share the podcast, every time you leave a review, you help us to grow as a community. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.